This is Focal Point, the podcast where we discuss the artists, themes, and processes that define and sometimes disrupt the world of contemporary photography. I'm Kristen Taylor, Curator of Academic Programs and Collections at the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College Chicago, here with guests Dawood Bay and Teju Cole. This is Louis Armstrong's version of Go Down Moses, the song for which Teju's exhibition takes its name. Let my people go! Dawood Bay is a widely acclaimed photographer and educator. Over the many decades of his career, he has used portraiture to convey the complex interiority and humanity of individuals. His recent works newly visualize chapters of American history. In the Birmingham Project, he interprets the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And a new series of landscapes traces the routing of the Underground Railroad through the Ohioan landscape. Teju Cole is an acclaimed writer, photographer, and critic, and the former photography critic of the New York Times Magazine. His works across mediums considers themes of humanity, movement, chaos, freedom, hospitality, and hope. He is the guest curator of the exhibition Go Down Moses, on view at the MOCP until September 29, 2019. This exhibition is a reinterpretation of the museum's collection. It can be understood as a visual tone poem, interweaving the past and present, and suggesting an aesthetic approach to understanding the current psyche. So we're standing in the third floor gallery of the MOCP, and on the wall is a tightly hung cluster of photographs, and each image depicts some sort of disaster, such as a burning building or the victim of a car crash strewn across the highway. Beyond these images that are very difficult to look at is one photograph hung entirely alone. It has a black frame with a black mat and is on a black wall. And the image is so dark that it is difficult to see the subject. My name is Dawood Bay, and I'm looking at Roy de Kawabe's photograph, uh, Man in Window, uh, which I have looked at uh, quite extensively uh, for a number of years. And Roy de Kawabe, uh, is a photographer whose work and presence has been meaningful to me almost since I became interested in making photographs. And this particular photograph, I think, uh, exemplifies a lot of the things that I find uh, meaningful uh, about De Carava's work. One of the things being that it's an exceedingly ordinary subject that has been elevated to uh, a level of uh, deep observation and interest. And it's a man doing, I guess what we could say, the most ordinary thing. Uh, I've always thought that he is kind of bathed in the soft light of a television that he's looking at. A man who, I happen to know, because I know where the photograph is made, actually lived across the street from De Carava's house uh, in Brooklyn. So it's probably someone that he had had time to observe, to think about how he might frame the experience of this lone black man. We then head down to a gallery on the museum's first floor where we see photographs of people lying down and resting. My name is Teju Cole, and um, here at the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago, we're looking at a picture by Melissa Ann Penny, a Chicago-based photographer, 
And the photograph we're looking at is called Canella School of Hair Design. Um, Melissa Ann Pinney's work was new to me uh, when I began to uh, curate this exhibition. And she was one of many ph photographers whose work I discovered in the archives of the MOCP. Um, I have two pictures uh, by her in this show. Um, and what I found very striking about her work uh, was not uh, necessarily just its subject. Uh, uh, this series is uh, very much about Chicago, but about certain moments that she captures that are very quiet, um, thoughtful, and somewhat surreal moments that are actually showing perfectly ordinary things. Um, this picture about the Canella School of Hair Design is a color photograph um, of an interior space of a, uh, a young woman with her head uh, 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 in um, resting on a, on a sink, on a hairdresser's sink. Um, the hairdresser's nowhere to be found. So it perhaps makes you think this is uh, a moment in the process of getting your hair done, maybe a, a perm or something, where something has to be washed out or allowed to rest for a moment. Um, that's what the picture is technically about. But what we see is somebody leaning back in a chair um, with some kind of gray apron on her and her head thrown back. And it's a very vulnerable, soft, interesting picture. It's, it, it provokes our sympathy in an unexpected way. Well, welcome, and thank you both for being here. It's an honor to sit with you right now. Um, I wanted to start with you, Dawood. Um, you knew instantly which artist you wanted to talk about, and you talked a little bit about De Carava's influence on your work. Can you talk a little bit about his specific influence on the work you're making more recently of landscape work that you exhibited at the Art Institute earlier this year? Well, De Carava was certainly an early influence in terms of uh, affirming for me that there was such a thing as a black photographer. You know, it made that nascent idea kind of uh, tangible. And my more recent project, Night Coming Tenderly Black, uh, references and I guess uh, pays tribute to the uh, Carabas work in a very uh, direct way. That work is a series of uh, photographs printed to appear as uh, nighttime landscapes that references the uh, reimagined path of uh, fugitive slaves moving through the uh, northeastern Ohio landscape. And when I thought about the work initially, the black subject and the photographic object and the photograph being about the blackness of night, taking the blackness of the subject, the blackness of the narrative, and the blackness of the photographic print brings me face to face with Wade Carabba, whose work uh, to me embodies all of those ideas. And Teju de Carabba is very important to you also in the exhibition. And 
you wanted to choose him, but Dawood had already taken it. Um, and in the exhibition, you, in conversation, called it the grace note to the exhibition. It's sort of the last picture you would see if you were moving sequentially through the exhibition. And can you talk a little bit about why you consider it the grace note, what that means to you? Yes. Um, when you're putting together a show, uh, you're thinking about images that do a certain kind of work when they're put next to each other, next to other images. Um, the criterion for a photograph being in an exhibition is not, can it hold a wall by itself? Uh, but what kind of work does it do? Echoing, amplifying, making meaning through its juxtaposition with others. Nevertheless, you end up with certain images that really can hold a wall by themselves, that are powerful in themselves for all the reasons that Dawood just mentioned. But this kind of um, analogical union of many different senses of black that we see in several photographs by Roy de Carava um, made his 1978 photograph, Man in a Window, sort of the perfect way to end this exhibition um, very clearly when you move through the space of the museum. Um, you, you, you come into a room where there's a lot of photographs on one wall, and then over there at the end on another wall is one single image that calls to you and says, come look at this and think about this as a final uh, note in the, in, in the exhibition. Um, as a writer, I often think about how do we end things? Mm -hmm. You know, um, what, what, what is an ending? And I don't believe an ending has to be loud. Mm -hmm. I think an ending very often can bring us into a contemplative space through which we can understand what has gone on before. So I don't, I, I believe that Dekarava is one of those artists that helps us understand that uh, politics, political thinking, liberatory thinking does not have to be loud. I happen to think that Dawood Bey is another of those artists. Mm -hmm. And when, we, when I saw Night Coming Tenderly Black, um, it, it affirmed and confirmed for me actually the way that his thinking is cognate with the kind of thinking that uh, De Carava did um, throughout his career. So I was very moved by that exhibition and um, I was very glad to be able to see it. Yeah. So let's talk about curating a little bit because in the exhibition night, Coming Tenderly Black, Dawood, you also pulled work from the Art Institute of Chicago's permanent collection and put together a companion exhibition outside of the walls of your own work. How, and you've curated a little bit before, I know that um, you talked about this earlier at the, Wad, the Wadsworth and the Weatherspoon Art Museum and even at the MOCP, I understand. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that process maybe differs or is similar to, to the rest of the work you do in making photographs? And Teju, the same question for you, because I know this is your first major curatorial oh. project. So if both of you can talk about how that process is similar or different to the other work you do. You know, and I think uh, for both of us uh, who both make photographs mm -hmm. and uh, who think about photographs, uh, extensively, the idea of uh, the photograph 
in the museum collection uh, is a very fertile space for thinking, uh, a space for realizing that these photographs, which may have come into a museum collection, can be, in fact, reshaped into multiple narratives. And I think as uh, artists, you know, we give ourselves the freedom to think about museum collection, uh, perhaps in a way that's a little more liberated and unmoored than a conventional uh, curator. thinking about perhaps bringing those works into a collection to fill certain gaps in the collection. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at that within the context of a very specific set of uh, works that they already have. And then uh, along comes someone who's not beholden to any of that, who might be thinking about something else entirely, which, in fact, the works in the collection can also support. Mm-hmm. And engage. So for me, with my work, because the night coming tenderly black photographs are fundamentally uh, landscapes, uh, I wanted to start by looking at the way in which the American landscape uh, has come to be uh, visualized and photographed. Mm-hmm. Going back to the 19th century survey photograph, which is the first encounter between the landscape and photography. And then moving forward to look at the way uh, increasingly that the black subject came to inhabit both the American physical and social landscapes and the way that that relationship had been visualized in photography and photograph. And it was important to me uh, also because while there are no uh, nominal or literal black figures or subjects in that work, that work is very much meant to be seen as if through the eyes of the unseen black subject. And so curating the uh, parallel exhibition from the Art Institute collection uh, allowed me to bring the black subject physically into the conversation and to amplify some of the ideas that uh, inherit uh, in my own project. And uh, it was just a way for me to think about this idea of the black subject in the American landscape, not through, again, making photographs, but going through a collection and shaping a different conversation through that collection around my set of concerns at that particular moment. Mm. Yeah, um, you know, a lot of that definitely resonates, the, the possibility of an individual coming in and making the collection do something that it did not know it even had in itself, but possibilities that were latent. Um, I think an archive might have been made for a particular set of reasons, um, but an archive is a material deposit um, that now becomes collective property mm-hmm. and becomes open to new readings. 
um, as institutions evolve and become more expansive and more inclusive in their thinking and their possibilities, the archive remains this perpetually open field in which various other things could happen. And I think that's why it is important to bring in people who are not necessarily experts to help rethink the archive because the archive is common property that has potential. Um, the immensely privileged work that we do as artists and thinkers about art is not a one-track work. Mm -hmm. It is multifarious. Um, when I make photographs, I'm thinking about photography through the camera in my hand and my editing of images and making of books. When I write photography criticism, I'm thinking about photographs through writing about other people's work, looking at their work, going to exhibitions, studio visits, and writing about their work. When I write about my own photographs for my own books, I'm doing that but in a different kind of way because now I'm thinking about my embodiment and what it means for me to be in a country and take photographs there. Um, and these are all sort of continuous activities that are distinct, but they have significant overlap. Um, so that when I step into a place like this and I do an exhibition, it's a continuation of um, this privileged but important set of practices, thinking about photography. Um, I think about photography with my hands and with my eyes and with my body and with my presence and with the way I organize photographic experiences for other people. Being invited to give a lecture is another practice. And they're all related in very, very interesting ways. So they keep sort of feeding each other. Um, so I definitely enter a space like this, um, not as an expert, uh, but hopefully not naive either, because I've, <laughs> you know, I've spent the better past part of the last decade just really thinking about photographs and being exposed to them every day. So there was a kind of readiness mm -hmm. there as well. Yeah. So when our director, deputy director and chief curator, Karen Irvine, asked you in the interview for the publication for Go Down Moses what our archive was missing, you said the vernacular photographs are just kind of the everyday pictures that people are taking all the time. And Dawood, I noticed in your exhibition you curated at the Art Institute, you put some of these everyday photographs, the vernacular photographs. Can you both talk a little bit about the importance of that kind of photography to you? And, and a bigger question is where you see photography heading at large since it's changing so dramatically every day? Mm. Big question. Well, I think for me, uh as I was going through the Art Institute's collection, uh, they had recently acquired a large number of what we would call uh, vernacular photographs, the authors or makers of whom we will never know. And uh, as I started going through those vernacular photographs, I was, in this particular context, very much interested in those pictures that contained black subjects. Because I began to think about as I was shaping the exhibition, I wanted to do a shift 
and include photographs that suggested not only how the black subject was pictured in photographs made by others, but how, in fact, the black subject had, has engaged in the act of what you might call self-authorship, uh-huh. how they uh-huh. have visualized their own set of social circumstances, like photographing their friends, their wives, their lovers, uh, whoever, in a very casual but, I think, meaningful way. Uh, this question of uh, making one's present visible through a photograph, which, of course, was never intended to end up in a museum exhibition, but was, at the very least, made as an act of self-affirmation, an affirmation of one's presence in the world, a kind of visible affirmation of that. And so within that particular uh, curated exhibition, I wanted to uh, include these photographs as a way of amplifying the way in which black people have seen and pictured themselves in the social landscape of their own world. Um, I'm intrigued by what uh, Dawood describes as uh, self-authorship there, because I think it's such a crucial part of recovering the past. Um, you know, I, probably for all of us when we're growing up, uh, history is a very clear, has a very clear idea of what it thinks it is. Uh, history is the deeds of great men. Some, some women, great white men made certain decisions that turned the course of certain things and then you sprinkle a few token others in there some black people, some Asian people, some women, some queer people. But really, history is the great deeds of great people. There's been a utter revolution in um, historical studies. has not necessarily caught up with popular audiences yet. who are still very interested in the acts of great men. But the understanding of historical studies now is that it is really worth it trying to retrieve the activities of ordinary people. Um, Everyday life, the history of everyday life. um, As with so many things, the French have tried to take credit for this, the Annales School. Um, But cultures all over the world have actually understood that the, the way that ordinary people think and the actions that they take and the decisions that they make are what constitutes the history of a nation and of a people. That's where custom comes from. That's where tradition comes from. The history of photography must be the history of everyday life as well. Mm -hmm. Icons are fine. Photographic icons are fine. And iconic photographers are also fine. Um, Great photographers, people who dedicated their lives to it, very often can hit the mark in a way that's intriguing and very moving. But it is also true that each great photographer is narrowly in their own lane. Um, and to stop bringing in material that is made by people who are not credentialed or um, uh, pre-certified as experts, professionals, or great allows us access to all kinds of 
submerged and ignored histories. Because if you only took submerged, if you only took um, um, major or great photographers for the first hundred years of photography's history, let's say between 1826 and 1926, well, then you're just going to have white people um, or black people as seen by white people. Um, but if you start allowing other voices to come in and you start and you start asking questions such as, well, what was photography like in West Africa in 1890 or in East Africa in 1910 or in Alabama or in Mississippi or in Harlem? You know, who is doing the work? Whose work uh, has had the fortune to survive? Um, it doesn't mean you necessarily bring all the artists back as great artists, but it means that you question the whole enterprise of greatness and say, how do we reimagine the past? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, and even for the contemporary, I very much believe in these um, informal and quite energetic channels that give us a vision quite different from what somebody who has an MFA mm-hmm. can give us. Mm-hmm. So we should probably talk about your collection choice now because um, we haven't really talked about Melissa Penny's work too much. Um, why is her work such a standout? Is it a little bit of what you were talking about of that everyday moment that she captured in the beauty salon? Or is it something bigger about this other force of punctum that was guiding mm-hmm. you? Can you talk a little bit about the idea of punctum and, yeah. and why Melissa Penny? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you you said, is it something bigger such as, you know, punctum, <laughs> which I actually think of as something smaller. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, there can be an energy in certain photographs, and that has been a, a bit of a guiding principle for this exhibition as a whole. The exhibition has maybe 150 images in it. Uh, for sure, many of them are content-driven. Many of them are driven by visual analogy and resonance and, you know, forms of repetition and building a visual argument. But many pictures are in the show because there's something in them that does prick that 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 stings that 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 calls out to you um this is the mystery and glory of photography that it is not simply what the camera has pointed at but it is what the camera in spite of itself and and in spite of the image maker has discovered you know what has been caught on the fly by the image and has remained permanently at rest inside that image. If we look at the Gordon Parks photo, early photograph for him of the boy on crutches, it's there in that picture. Uh, What I describe as a sort of gentle surrealism, but um, I'm always looking for this moment that's a combination of the tender and the unexpected where then there's some kind of tension in your interpretation of what you're, you're seeing. Um, because I think if we're talking about the intensities of the present moment, I, I think um, tenderness combined with strangeness is one of the ways we can access that.
you know, like on a very intimate uh, level. So that that's something I see in in in, in Penny's work, and and I do have to say that, um, you know, like all photographers, um, it's not as if, you know, she's got hundreds of pictures like this. Mm-hmm. It's that. Uh, she's got a fine body of work, and then certain pictures just hit you right between the eyes. You know, very few people are Robert Frank, mm-hmm. who hit that mark again and again and again and again. Roy de Carava hit that mark so many times. If you take a volume of his, of his work, it, you know, every other picture you just hold your head and say, "Oh my God, how?" You know, most photographers cannot do that, but I think you know, for a photographer, even in a lifetime, to have you know, a dozen pictures that really hit that mark, I consider that a, sort of a great success. So. so you, at the end of the exhibition, have a lot of images of that are hard to look at, of violence and chaos and destruction. Um, and Dawood, I've heard you talk about how you started the Birmingham series. The project was... Um, started from an image that you saw that was very difficult for you to look at as a child. Can you describe that inspiration for you and that image and the importance of that image to you? Well, the image that you are referring to is a photograph of uh, Sarah Jean Collins, who was the sister of one of the four girls uh, who was killed in the dynamiting of the 16th Street Baptist Church in 1963. And I encountered uh, that photograph uh, when I was, I think, about 11 years old. And uh, everything changed for me uh, seeing that photograph. I've always thought that there was my life before that photograph and my life after that photograph. And uh, it was a photograph of her laying wounded in a hospital bed with big uh, gauze bandages over her eyes. And I don't know that uh, I intuited at that moment that one of the reasons that it was having such a profound effect on me was that I was very near to being the same age as the girl in the photograph. I think I might have intuited it without actually knowing it. And uh, that stayed with me uh, for a very long time uh, until uh, several decades later as as an adult, as a more than fully grown adult actually, I uh, awoke with a start one morning and that image came flashing back to me. And I decided I, I needed to do something with that. Uh, I needed to make something out of that. I needed to respond to that by making something. And that began uh, a series of several visits to uh, Birmingham, Alabama over uh, several years, uh, becoming familiar with the place and also thinking all that time, what do you make in response to something like that? It happened. It's in the past. There's not much to be seen now, although in some way there is. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems to still, uh, those kinds of traumas uh, kind of linger in the air, in the atmosphere, and the soil even. 
but uh, in the most fundamental sense, there's nothing to see. So how does one make work about that? And I finally uh, came to uh, this idea of making photographs of young black girls who were the ages of those four girls in order to give those girls a palpable physical presence to make photographs of young African-American girls now who are the ages that they were in order to give them a less mythic and more tangible physical presence. And as I thought about it further, I wanted to figure out how does one visualize the passage of time? How do you do the thing with a camera that photography is designed not to do? Uh It's Uh designed to make a still image Uh of Uh a moment. Uh How do you make something about an extended period of time? And that's when I came to the idea of making photographs of women who were now the ages that those young girls would have been. And in pairing them, I could actually make a diptych that did, in fact, embody 50 years. There was this idea of figuring out how to embody uh, and visualize the idea of time in the still photograph in a way that uh, resonated very deeply. Not as a documentation, because it isn't a documentation. It's not them, but it is them uh-huh. in, in a deeper sense. Uh, so those girls and women, and there were two African-American boys killed that day. So I did the same thing, photographing boys who were the ages of the two boys and men who were the ages that those boys uh, would have been really made me begin to think about the uh, possible ways in which the photograph could actually be a vehicle through which one might talk about and in some way visualize the past in the contemporary moment. And that pretty much set the trajectory for the work that I've continued to do. To make photography, which is, of course, when it's made, it's made in the now. Mm -hmm. Uh But how to make it resonate in a very palpable way with a sense of history. Mm -hmm. Uh Let's bring it back to your exhibition a little bit. You actually included one of Dawood's photographs in the exhibition, and it's more um, a street photography type image photographed in New York. Um, It is called Third Street Basketball Court, New York City, and it was taken in 1986. But you've also written about Dawood's work before in the New York Times in an article called There's Less to Portraits That Meet the Eye and More. Yes. Um, Yes. Is there a particular project that Dawood has made that is your favorite or what what work do you appreciate by him the most? And the same question for you, Dawood, about (laughs) Teju. Is there something that he's written that resonates with you the most? (laughs) I, I'm going to answer the question for him. <laughs> he, he likes the essay I wrote about his work <laughs> on a purely neutral basis, of course. <laughs> um, well, of course, Daoud is one of our leading photographers. So um, one sort of looks at that body of work and it's simply, you know, grateful for it. And, you know, when I sat down to write that essay, which was about portraiture, I wasn't saying, no, I'm going to write an essay about Daoud's work. It's just that I was looking for work that had the amplitude 
that allowed me to actually attempt to say something new about what's happening in photographs. You know, and in that um, essay, I, wa- I wanted to go a little bit against the grain of the way people normally read portraits, which is you look, read the portrait and you read it physiognomically and, oh, this person has this sort of eyes and therefore this is their character or, or something like this. And then just sort of bring it more back to, A, the fact of a portrait as a testimony to an encounter and uh, a testimony to the artist's sensitivity, very subtle sensitivity, and B, a portrait as a place where soft, small, unexpected things can happen that don't have to do with the genetics, but have to do with those little shifts of perception that a, a, a really great artist can bring to, to bear. Um, so that's, that's, that's why I selected that. Um, but to zoom back out of that for a moment, I think, you know, what, what draws me about Dawood's work is that he's a good and faithful servant of the given. Uh, he's functioning in a certain uh, moment in history. Um, There are certain political realities that impinge on the making of the art. There's a very serious commitment to the art that comes both out of sensibility and out of technical skill. Um, You know, and and he's a teacher, you know. So um, you, you, you can sort of abstract individual images out. But if you go through the whole sequence of seeing deeply what what you see is a, a testimony of of of, of sort of, of of commitment i do very much like the photographs of the uh, the students in uh the in the board in the, in the boarding school is it boarding mm-hmm. school um you know students of all uh all, all all races who are in this sort of in between age Puberty, you know, young teens, and such compassion for these young people in these very beautiful, large, formal portraits. Um, so yeah, uh, and as far as uh, you know, the Third Street ba- basketball thing, you know, uh, so many things just sort of suddenly happen with that picture. One is that um, it's not a, it's not portraiture, and, and there's a there's a sort of angularity and subtlety to it. You know, a touch of Decarava in that as well, even though, you know, uh, it's obviously very contemporary. I've been by those basketball courts numerous times, stood there and watched games going way back to 1995. Um, I mean, it's like it's just you get off of West 4th. It's it's right there. It's part of New York. There's dudes on there where, you know, you're thinking this guy should be in the NBA. And then you're like, well, maybe not because he's like five foot seven, but he sure can play basketball. You know, so there's that, you know, there's a touch of Lee Friedlander with the chain link and that complexity of that. So it's in conversation with the history of art as well. Um, And I think ultimately, if you're also doing this sort of mixed practice of being a photographer, writer, curator, I think there's always also an element of when you select something, there's always an element of that's a photo I wish I had taken. Mm -hmm. 
Sometimes it just comes right down to that. You know, sometimes you do a show just full of photos you wish you had taken, you know, which is a layer of this exhibition I've not even talked about much. But, you know, half the pictures in there, I, you know, if I look at Kerry Coppin's picture uh, that's in the show of, of, of a group of uh, young black men dancing in Chicago, um, I think my first, my rawest response to it is, wish I took that, <laughs> you know? So, um, but this is not, um, this is not envy at all. It's more appreciation. I'm glad it's in the world. I wish I took it. I wish I owned it. I want to be closer to it a little bit longer. I'm going to put it in my show. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because that, that, uh, that basketball court is a very iconic location and social space uh, in New York. For those who know, and I've been out of New York for a few years now, more than a few years, but at the moment that I made that photograph, I, like a lot of people, had spent hours standing there watching some of the most extraordinary, both organized and pickup basketball games. And that photograph is really, uh, it's me looking. You know, and of course, all photographs are about the photographer looking. But in that particular space, it echoes so much a piece of what was very much a seamless part of the fabric of my life. Mm-hmm. Because it's right there mm-hmm. by the subway station. You can't come and go from the village without passing by that right. basketball court. Uh, and it's also interesting for me to see the photograph in this exhibition because that is a piece and a period of my work that is not much shown mm-hmm. or seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was kind of surprised to see it myself mm-hmm. uh, because I don't see that piece of my work on the wall mm-hmm. uh, too often. Mm-hmm. But for those who know uh, that location, uh, kind of like in the way that 57th Street and 5th Avenue, mm-hmm. you know, you think mm-hmm. about all the photographs that Winogrand made mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. Freelander, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. like there are Meyerowitz, certain... Meyerowitz, all these guys. Meyerowitz, yeah. all yeah. of yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are certain iconic locations uh, within the city of New York. And New York is all by the corners, right? It's like the corner <laughs> of this and that. and. <laughs> Pick your corners, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah. and that's one of them. Yeah, and so uh, so I was just pleasantly uh, yeah. surprised to uh, see it included because it's also a very uh, it's 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 a very public social moment, but it's also a very uh, quietly intimate moment. Oh yeah. Uh, but what's well. on that block is the Blue Note mm-hmm. Jazz Club. Mm-hmm. So I mean, think of that juxtaposition. I mean, that photo is jazz. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's not coincidental. I mean, it's it's a very mixed space, it's a diverse space, but it's not coincidental that what we largely see there are black bodies, the arms, you know, the figures that are across the mm-hmm. the picture plane, and you know, you blink and suddenly you're at the Blue Note, and you know, Miles Davis is playing there, mm-hmm. you know. So there's there's a continuity to to these things because I think. Locations retain the uh, the ghost of, of of the things that happen there, you know. 
in, in those locations. I'm glad you brought up the jazz club because music has been also a big influence on this exhibition down to the title being called Go Down Moses. You made a custom playlist on your Spotify account to go with this exhibition and you're always playing music as you were working in the museum. Um, and we've talked about influences already a little bit with De Carava's work and I know that you also are inspired by Langston Hughes' poetry that was part of the title of your exhibition at the Art Institute. Can you both talk a little bit about those influences outside of photography with poetry or music or painting? And are there any that haven't yet worked their way into your work that we can expect down the road? Well, I was a drummer before I was a photographer. So certainly uh, music has been and continues to be uh, very, a very important piece of my way of being and thinking. Uh, most people probably don't know that Roy de Carabo was also a very good tenor saxophone player. A very good. He always said that he's, he was just a student. But that's an interesting way in which people who have a high regard and a, a very deep respect for an art form can practice it for 20 or 30 years and still call themselves a student, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And certainly the relationship between De Carabba's own interest in visualizing music and his extensive study of uh, John Coltrane uh, extended to his own practice as a musician too. And because I did study and play jazz and was initially informed uh, and inspired by... Uh, jazz drummers like Tony Williams, mm. who was actually my first creative inspiration of any kind. Mm. The world lit up for me when I first heard Tony Williams uh, and Alvin Jones. And I had the good fortune when I was very young to be able to study with uh, some, very, some very good uh, teachers uh, as a drummer, uh, starting with Tootie Heath, which some people who mm. know the music might know, and uh, Milford Graves, who is considered uh, the father of free jazz drumming. Uh, so music, That's incredible. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and my ability to just go into a situation and improvise. Yeah. Because a lot of, uh, certainly, it's probably more uh, explicit in the period of my street photography work, which one has to just go in and improvise and mm -hmm. find the form and articulate it. Mm -hmm. But I think every situation that I go into... Uh, as an artist and photographer making work, I never know uh, exactly what I'm going to be confronted with. But because uh, you understand the form, you understand the material, you understand the parameters, and you just improvise. So this notion of uh, improvisation is kind of uh, foundational to my thinking and my confidence, actually, uh, as an artist. And I yeah. used to... Uh, write a lot of fiction and poetry. Uh, in my younger years, published quite a bit of poetry in different literary journals. And so all of that, uh, it's very much a part of uh, my formation and my thinking uh, as an artist and photographer. And I, I think about the world, really, in different ways to use the material that the world offers you. Uh, in some kind of uh, creative uh, articulation. 
Yeah. Um, the first time I saw a live jazz concert was in 1992, uh, having just uh, returned here from, from Nigeria. And it was Jimmy Heath. Girl. You know, you know that song CTA, which is the CTA. <laughs> um, so that, I mean, he wrote that for Miles Davis. So, I mean, that was like really something that anchored me into this tradition I ended up really, really loving very deeply. Um, recently, I've been thinking a lot about the difference between um, uh, practices that are integrative and practices that want to separate the world out into like these distinct strands that silo things off. Um, and integrated practice, I know how nourishing it is and how satisfying it can feel to encounter in a piece of music, the, uh, in, a, in a photograph, the emanations of music, in, in um, uh, a menu, the emanations of tradition and improvisation, in, in, in painting the sense that, you know, the person also has a sense of architecture or dance or whatever. But it's really hard to say why this very healthy integration is present in some places and why in some places it's so hard to break into it. I don't know if it's a difference between indigeneity and colonialism. I don't know if it's a difference between blackness as experience and what thinks of itself as whiteness. I don't know if it's a difference between more uh, socially um, committed political practices and raw capitalism. You know, I don't know if it's the difference between um, uh, tradition and mo modernity. All of those things partially map it, but none completely explains it because it can, integration can erupt into our dailiness if we give it a chance. What I do know is that that's where our health is, you know. Um, separating everything out, turning everything so professional, people siloing, siloing themselves off, defending their turf and all of this. But life at its best wants to sort of bleed in and like die, you know, color dies running into each other. Um, so, um, I know that I'm at my truest and best selves, self when everything is in conversation. And I don't have to make a declaration of any kind of purity, you know. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll say, um, well, I don't believe in God, but also God is against purity. <laughs> <laughs> if I did believe in God, God would be against any form of purity and isolation because we're all sort of in this together. You know, and I was thinking uh, in relation to uh, this question about music and other influences and thinking about uh, your use of the grace note 
term mm-hmm. in the exhibition, which is, of course, in fact, a musical term, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it shows, you know, that the De Carava man in the window photograph, you know, it serves, you know, the same function within the construct of the exhibition uh, as it would musically when you have a phrase Mm. And then at the end of that phrase, that particular statement, there's the grace note at yeah. the end. Yeah. Against yeah. which the phrase is now waved. Yeah. There's yeah. the grace note. And then they kind of set each other off. Yes, absolutely. You know, the or- grace note allows you to consider that phrase in a very different kind of way in light of that one last flourish. Yeah, yes, and very of often phrase. John Coltrane will do like a triplet. Mm-hmm. Where the <laughs> phrase has been there, you know, at the end there, almost as if he's just saying, I'm signing off. Like, he's just sort of played like some yeah. like circular breathing thing that has like a million notes in it. And then there'll always be like this little throwing it out with this three note thing yeah. that he does. And it's great to hear that Carava uh, played because... I mean, if you could take a picture home, it would be the one of the men dancing in that darkened hall. For me, it would be the portrait he made of Coltrane and Elvin Jones. You know what I'm saying? What a picture. Because that picture is music. You know, um, what's, what, is, what does it mean to solo? You know, you can just see Coltrane in profile almost mm-hmm. as if the saxophone continues his profile very close behind Elvin is is on drums, but it's just pure grain, dark grain. You know, he's just dissolving into this bouquet of the of, of the of the lens. But the picture is so musical. It's so there inside the music. It's full of love, but also expertise. They have deep focus on what they're doing. That's a picture that I would like to sort of live with because, um, you know, this is a conversation also that between the photographer and the men photograph that, you know, as, as Tony Morrison has said in a different way, sort of eludes the white gaze. This is not being presented to, oh, look at us. This is a conversation of love inside a tradition, you know, um, so he, he, he photographed Coltrane like no one else ever did. He yeah, really from, from inside from the inside, situation. Truly. And that photograph, which is another picture that I can, it's always somewhere in my yeah. brain. Yeah. It's, the, it's, the, it's the formal embodiment of both the music and the relationship between those two musicians, That's those right. two men. That's right. But in absolutely exquisite lyricism is also the embodiment of the music. Yeah. But then there's Alvin right. and there's Coltrane. Yeah. And Alvin is in fact the foundation. Yes. And then Coltrane is the lyrical. And uh, you could almost imagine a second version of that picture in which Alvin is sharp and Coltrane is blurred. <laughs> right? Because that is how jazz works. Mm-hmm. It's an exchange. Mm-hmm. It's an interchange somebody's emanating out of this, I mean, this is Fred Moten's idea, out of this collective body. Mm-hmm. The soloist is not a star. The soloist 
the the band is the star. Mm-hmm. The soloist comes out of the band like a solar flare, and then is reabsorbed into the band, into the collective. You know, so I could I can see that sophistication in the way he makes that image. Now that's an exquisite yeah. photograph. One of my favorite. Yeah, yeah. We've got yeah. to do a heist and steal it from somebody who has a good print of it. <laughs> we'll we'll replace it with a photocopy. <laughs> I think we are out of time. Thank you both for coming in. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for listening to Focal Point. Focal Point is presented by the Museum of Contemporary Photography at Columbia College Chicago in partnership with WCRX FM Radio. Special thanks to Matt Cunningham and Wesley Reno. To see the images we discussed today, please visit mocp.org backslash focal point. You can also follow the Museum of Contemporary Photography on Facebook and Instagram at mocpchi, that's M-O-C-P-C-H-I, and on Twitter at mocp underscore Chicago. If you enjoyed our show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Focal Point anywhere you get your podcasts. The Rock.